Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the eternal word. You are the word who spoke all things into existence. You're the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We ask now that by your spirit, you would speak to us and shine the light of your word into our hearts. We ask this in your name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A couple weeks ago, Rachel and I had the opportunity to uh, take our kids back to South Carolina, where I'm from, and visit my family. It's been a while since we've been able to do that near Christmas, uh, but, but it was a great time. We stayed at my parents' house, and we had a bonfire, rode around on a tractor, um, we played games, um, we opened presents together, and we even got to attend the annual neighborhood Christmas party, uh, which is the 27th annual neighborhood Christmas party for Ann Drive. Um, for 27 years, my parents have hosted this party for all the people who live on their street. And it's been a while since I've been able to attend. And you know what? Nothing has changed. Uh, the same people came to the party uh, the same people who attended when I was a teenager. And they brought the exact same food that they brought then. And we told the same stories. Uh, and, it, and it was wonderful. And I was thinking, you know, as we were sitting there eating sausage and cheese balls, which were great, and, uh, and telling neighborhood stories, we were telling the kids about how, how we used to hook up a sled to Kyle's four-wheeler when we were young, every time it snowed, and then very dangerously and irresponsibly drive each other around as fast as we could, um, and about how Avery would get so scared of hearing any siren, even when it was the fire truck that was bringing Santa to throw candy out to the kids at the neighborhood, he would get so scared that he would run in his house and hide under a bed. Or, and we told him about how Brad and Susan had this parrot named Petey, and Petey, anytime you ever ask him, where is Brad, Petey would say, gone to Home Depot. That was his response. So we're telling all these stories and, uh, and just being with each other. And, and I realized that the reason, the reason I enjoyed that party so much is because it felt like home. And isn't that really so much of what we often look forward to in the Christmas season? It's the time of the year when we can, we can dedicate time just to, to being with friends and family to reliving old traditions, to telling the same stories and eating the same food and just enjoying each other's company. Christmas is a time when we remember that what matters most to us, we often forget, but what matters most to us, what we really want more than anything else is just to belong, to have a place we can go where everybody knows your name and everybody is glad you're there and it's not because of anything you've said or anything you've done to impress them. It's just because, because you're theirs, because you belong to them. Home. For some people, Christmas is a time when, the time when they get to experience the warmth and the joy and the comfort of home. And for others, it's a time of the year that ends up being just a painful reminder that they're far away from home or that their home is broken and doesn't feel like a home, or that the people who make up their home are no longer around. 
Sometimes home can be a source of joy and great comfort, and sometimes home is a source of sorrow and disappointment. But either way, it's something that's on our minds this time of year. Whether or not for the last couple of weeks you've been thankful and enjoyed having a home and a people to whom you belong that you get to spend time with, or whether you've been saddened that you don't have that, either way, I'm sure it's been on your mind. It's something we want. And there's something very fitting about that because Christmas, the story of Christmas is ultimately a story about home. More specifically, it's a story about God's determination to make a home for us and to make a home with us. And there's perhaps no gospel writer who makes this clearer than the Apostle John. John tells the Christmas story very differently than Matthew or Luke. Luke, as you might remember, begins, begins his account by telling about the angel coming to Zechariah and then to the Virgin Mary, and then about Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and Jesus being born and the shepherds hearing the news while watching their flocks at night. Matthew is different. Matthew kind of starts his account way earlier with that long genealogy that traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Abraham. But once you kind of wade your way through that, then Matthew starts to include some of the things that we're more familiar with. He tells the, the story of the angel appearing to Joseph. And Matthew's the one who tells the story about the Magi who see that star and then make that long journey to find the newborn king. If you've ever seen a Christmas pageant or if you've ever just looked at a manger scene and you read the story of Christmas in Luke or Matthew, you'll come across things that are very familiar to you. But John isn't like that. John doesn't include anything about angels appearing to people. He doesn't talk about trips to Bethlehem. He doesn't talk about shepherds or magi. He doesn't even talk about a baby being born. And that's because John's purpose isn't to give us the details of what happened at Christmas. John's interest is in helping us to understand what it means. John wants us to understand that the story of Christmas is ultimately a story about home. And he also wants us to understand that this isn't a story that begins with Jesus' birth. It begins much, much earlier than that. In fact, John begins his account of Christmas before Matthew does, not with Abraham, but with creation itself. All you have to do is notice the first three words he uses in John chapter 1. In the beginning. It's not a terribly original start. We've heard that before. It's in the book of Genesis. The same exact words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is very intentional in choosing those words. He wants us to remember Genesis and he's also telling us something significant about Jesus' birth and about the purpose of his birth. Uh, in the 13th century, there was a Franciscan theologian named John Duns Scotus. 
You all probably know and love him. I imagine his books are on your bedside table right now. We all read Scotus from time to time. Anyway, our good friend John Dud Scotus in the 13th century, he gave an interesting answer to, to a rather strange hypothetical question. Would God have become human if humanity had never fallen into sin? If the sin, if the fall had never occurred, would God still have become human? Of course, this is a hypothetical question because the fact is humanity did fall into sin and God became human to rescue us and redeem us from that sin. But Scotus wants to ask and say, but is that his only motivation? Was that God's only reason in being born as a baby? Did he not have any other purpose? And Scotus responds to that question by saying, in fact, God does have another purpose. God wanted to be with us. God wanted us to share in his own life and to share his glory. And so, Scotus says, even if the fall had never occurred, he thinks God would still have become human. Now, I don't know if Scotus is right about that. I don't know that anyone could ever answer such a hypothetical question. But I think that his instinct is correct. And I think John affirms this by beginning his account where he does, not with Zechariah, not with Abraham, not even with the fall, but with creation itself. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John goes on to say, and everything that came into existence was created through the word. Without the word, nothing was made that has been made. And then he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You notice that language, life the light, the light shining in the darkness. Again, John is transporting us back to the early chapters of Genesis. You remember how God created the world in Genesis? By speaking through his word. And you remember what God created? Light and life. In the beginning, there was darkness the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. That's what Genesis says. John's talking about the same thing, about creation and life and light shining in the darkness. But in verse 4, he's telling us something more when he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. That's a curious thing to say. Makes sense to say that the word was life, he's God himself, but what does he mean that he was the light of men? You might think that what John's referring to here is Jesus' teaching. In Psalm 119, the psalmist talks about God's instruction and teaching, and he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And maybe that's what John's referring to. It's Jesus' teaching and how it guides us and how it brings us to life but I think there's something even more to this because John doesn't just say that the word gives light to humanity or that the word gives life to humanity, but that that life is in him. He himself is that life, which is another way, another way of saying what Genesis 2 says. When God created human beings, he didn't just 
give them life from afar. He breathed his very own life into them. The word doesn't just give life, he shares his own life. Because God, because the word didn't just want to make creatures, he wanted to make human beings who would share his life. Because he wasn't just making a world, he was making a home. You remember what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15 when he says, I no longer call you servants, but we'll see if you know this, the nine o'clock, they didn't know, but you guys might be better. I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. I call you friends. And if you notice, it's the chapter right before that in John 14, where Jesus tells them, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you to myself that where I am in my father's house, there you may be also. All throughout the gospel of John, there is language that Jesus uses to his followers and he addresses them not just as his creatures, not just as his servants, but as friends and as family, as those who belong to his own home. And the reason that John begins the gospel the way that he does is to remind us that this story of God making a home with us, it's not some afterthought for God. It's what the word was doing from the very beginning. And it's not, it's not without problems. And it's not without bumps along the road. It's not some easier sentimental idea of home. John doesn't say that the word made a home and everyone was delighted and then God came and we all welcomed him and sat down in a meal and had a celebration. That's not what happens. In verse 11, he says that the word came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And, and it's an interesting phrase that he uses there, the Greek phrase where it says he came to his own. It's actually the exact same phrase that he uses later in chapter 19 when Jesus is talking to the beloved disciple from the cross and he tells them, he tells the beloved disciple to take care of his mother Mary and the disciple, it says, takes Mary and takes her, this is the phrase, to his own home. That's how it's translated in 19. Which is one reason that sometimes translators translate this verse a little differently. Dale Bruner, for instance, has it like this. So the word came down into his own home and his own family did not welcome him. Now some of you may come from a broken family. You might know what it was like to be unwelcome in your own home. But can you imagine the son of God, the eternal word who has shared his own life with the intent to make a home with his people, that he would come to them and that he would be so rejected, so unwelcomed, that his own people would refuse to receive him. But it's true. The Son of God came to his own people, to his own home, and they did not welcome him. 
And yet he persevered. What does verse 14 say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You could easily preach a whole sermon about that sentence. People have written books about the meaning of that one sentence. That one sentence conveys something that is so wondrous, so profound that there is probably no end to what we could say about the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But I want to just say something about those last words. John chooses a very strange word when he says the word dwelt among us. There's a number of words you can use in Greek to talk about someone living or dwelling somewhere. And John doesn't use any of those normal words. Instead, he uses the verb skinao, which means to pitch a tent. And so he says the word became flesh in eskinosen and himin. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Now, why say that? Again, John is careful and he's intentional. He knows what he's doing and he uses that word because once again, he wants us in our minds and imaginations to go back to the Old Testament. This time, not to the book of Genesis, but to the book of Exodus. In the latter part of the book of Exodus, that word is used in the Greek translation of Exodus numerous times to refer to the construction of a single tent that would be pitched among the people. A large tent that would be constructed and pitched at the very center of their camp every time they set up camp. It was the tabernacle. That's what that word is referring to. And what does God tell Moses in Exodus 25 when he's giving them instructions on how to build the tabernacle and what to do? What does he give them for the reason for its construction? God says, let the people make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. See how familiar that sounds? And then what happens when they finally complete the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 40? Exodus says that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And for centuries after that, the tabernacle and then the temple stood as this imposing visible reminder, this physical guarantee that God intended to make his home with his people, that he intended to live among them. And when they visited the the tabernacle or the temple, they were able to get the barest glimpses, experiences of his glory, of his overwhelming beauty and holiness, of his steadfast, unwavering commitment to be with them and to make his home with them. And they could go there and they could know that they belong. They could know they were welcomed and they could know and experience what it felt like to be at home. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 84, it's why the psalmist says that his soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. That's the temple. It's why he says, blessed, Happy, blissful are those who dwell in the house of God. 
It's why he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, that he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of his God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For hundreds of years, the people of Israel, those people who are so often wandering, so often uprooted, so often homeless, for hundreds of years, they had been able to go to the tabernacle and temple of the Lord and know that their God was making his home with them and making a home for them. But John says that now God has done something even greater. Now he hasn't just constructed a tent or a temple to symbolize his presence among his people. Now his glory isn't just an overwhelming and unapproachable cloud of beauty and holiness. Now he has come in person. Now he himself has come to be with them and live among them. And now we can actually see and touch his glory. As John says in his first epistle, now we can actually see and touch his glory. Because now... It doesn't exist on a darkened mountain or in an unapproachable cloud or in some holiest of holy spaces. Now we can experience his glory in the form of a human face. No one, no one has ever seen God, John says. But the only God, the Word, the one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but the one who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. This year was the first year in a long time that I've been able to participate and the Andrive annual Christmas party. And I loved it. And part of the reason I loved it is because I was there. And you know, being with people and actually being able to see them and to touch them, to give them a hug, to look in their eyes when you're talking to them, that's a very different than just talking to someone over a phone or hearing stories about how they're doing. When you're actually there with each other in person, you know you belong. When you're there, it feels like home. I don't know what this Christmas season has been like for you. Maybe you've felt the warmth and the welcome and the joy of home, and maybe you haven't. But let us not forget the profound truth that John is communicating to us in this prologue to his gospel. Let us not forget what Christmas, what God's coming into the world, what the birth of Christ, what it really means. Christmas is not just some quaint, cheerful, pious story about the birth of a baby. Christmas is the proof. It is the guarantee to us, if we ever doubted it, that when God created the world, he intended to make a home. And that even when we have ruined it, even when we have wrecked that home, even when we have failed to welcome him, 
he perseveres. He doesn't give up. He comes to a tabernacle and then a temple and then he becomes flesh and pitches his tent among us because he wants to dwell with us, because he wants to make us his family, because he wants to share his home with us. And every week when we gather together for church, every week we come together and we have a meal. It's not quite as lavish as Ann Street and Drive Christmas party meal. There's no mulled wine, no mulled cider, uh, no chicken fingers, no cookies. It's just bread and wine. And that's okay because the purpose of this meal, the purpose of this meal isn't to fill us up. The purpose of this meal is to remind us that we are family, that we belong, that we have been made a part of the home of God, that the Son of God, the eternal word, that he paid the price of his own life, his own body and blood to ensure that we would have a home. And that one day, not too long from now, one day we will gather together and we will sit at a table with the lamb himself and we will laugh and we will sing and we will share the greatest meal we've ever had. And then on that day, then we will be at home. Merry Christmas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.